Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hey everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. We are working through Matthew. We're in chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, and we are following off the heels of last week. If you remember, and that was that really short one that was so prescriptive about how to deal with sin. So here today, we're moving forward with this next piece that Alan kind of alluded to last week. Yeah, yeah. So this is the this is uh, um, the conclusion to the community discourse in Matthew 18. And as we discussed last week, I think it's important to keep the context of the discourse as a whole together. It brings together several of Jesus' teachings about life in the community that emphasize humility, compassion, and forgiveness as essential components of community life. And we're going to see that with our lesson today as well. Well, how, how does it begin? Our lesson begins this week with a question about forgiveness. Uh, Matthew eighteen twenty one said to him, Lord, if my brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times. And that's Peter's question in verse 21. Now, if we, if we look at um, the gospel traditions as a whole, we can see Max, Matthew's use of Q, especially if we compare Luke's gospel, uh, in, in Luke's gospel, in Luke 17, 4, Jesus simply instructs the disciples, if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. And in fact, it would seem that Matthew may have used Q as the foundation for this part of the community discourse because we find the same in the same context sayings of Jesus about avoiding causing the little ones to stumble, which was a part of the context of the early part of the community discourse. We didn't really talk about that, but we alluded to it. Uh, that's Luke 17, 1 through 2. Mm-hmm. The issue of admonishing one who sins against you, and that was our lesson last week, and that's Luke 17, 3, as we talked about. Mm-hmm. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there's repentance, you must forgive. And then this saying about forgiveness, where in verse four, in 17, 4, uh, if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. And so that block of material in Luke 17, 1 through 4 seems to be sort of the, the cue structure that Matthew uses to build his community discourse in Matthew chapter 18. So it's in, so it's in Luke. Yep. It's not in Mark. Nope. But it's in... And, and Matthew, and then we assume Q. So that's why and, we think that, that it was in, in the yeah, Q materials that Matthew right, had access right. to. Yep. And so is it exactly the same in Matthew as it is in Luke? No, it's not. As you could hear, perhaps, from my reading of the, of the verses from Luke, uh, Matthew has reframed this verse so that Peter asks a question. You know, Jesus simply stated, you know, if, if another disciple sends you know, you must rebuke the offender. And he says, you know, if the same person sends against you seven times a day, it's back to back in Luke, right? If another mm-hmm. disciple sends, you must rebuke the offender. And if there's repentance, you must forgive. If the same person sends against you seven times a day and turns you back to you seven times mm-hmm. and says, I repent, you must forgive. That's all just, that's all back to back in Luke. But here in, in Matthew, he's reframed it so that Peter asks a question whether he should forgive as many as seven times. While in Luke's version, Jesus instructs them to forgive seven times a day. 
So it would seem that Matthew has linked this saying with the previous description for the process of admonishing a brother or sister through the phrase, mm-hmm. sins against you or sins against me, in the way he set up this mm-hmm. question that Peter asks. And we should understand, I think, that the idea of forgiving seven times is does not imply that there's a limit on forgiveness, but rather from yes. Matthew's perspective, this question would have implied perfect or complete forgiveness. So whether it's seven times a day or seven times, that would have, in their minds, have been uh, complete mm-hmm. forgiveness. Should I really okay. forgive okay. completely? It, it does beg me to ask the question of, is the number significant at all, or is this just, um, <laughs> just a random number? It's not a random number. Um, you know, in that, in that worldview, in the biblical worldview, seven was implied or signified completeness. So the idea is, you know, mm. am I really to forgive, you know, those who sin against me perfectly or completely? Am I really to do that? And, and Jesus responds, he says, he says in, in Matthew's version of Matthew 18, 22, Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. And that's the translation of the NRSV, as well as many other translations from the mid 20th century onwards. Older English versions had 70 times seven. Seven. Or 490 yeah. times, yeah. right? And that's in Wycliffe, that's in the Geneva translation, the King James, the American Standard, and even the Revised Standard. And also there's some more uh, modern translations like Phillips, uh, the Good News translation, the Message, the New Living translation, and Tom Wright's New Testament for Everyone. They also adopt this translation. Uh, and I think I think that the um, that the seventy times seventy uh, the seventy times seven in the older versions the older English versions is probably likely due to the influence of the Vulgate, and um, uh, the Vulgate has yeah. uh, seventy yeah. times seven. Now interpreters differ on the translation, but most go with seventy seven times. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that the Greek is is a bit ambiguous in its construction. But I think the point is not about a specific number. The point is that there are no limits to the, to the forgiveness that Jesus instructs his disciples mm-hmm. to practice. I think Gene Boring in his commentary on Matthew in the New Interpreter's Bible says it well. Whoever counts has not forgiven at all, but is only biding his or her time. The kind of forgiveness called for is beyond calculation. Oh, I think I that's a that. great way to put mm-hmm. it. And so in, the, in that case, maybe the translation 70 times 7 may be more appropriate, even if it's not necessarily the best translation of the Greek text, because in, in, in English, 70 times 7, I think, conveys that idea of unlimited forgiveness better. And that's probably why some of the more recent translations like the Message and the New Living Translation and Tom Wright's New Testament for Everyone mm-hmm. have adopted that. Yeah, I, I like that. And I noticed that. But I, I don't think I internalized it till you pointed it out here to me. I, um, and and uh, I do like that uh, kind of going back to that uh, 70 times 7. Times. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So um, tell us why is this significant with, uh, within the context of, of Matthew? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, this is a very clear declaration of this idea of unlimited forgiveness as a principle upon which Christian community is built. And so that's, I mean, it's one of the clear statements in this community discourse, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so we have, to, we have to reckon with that. But Matthew then follows this declaration of the principle with a parable 
that illustrates that true forgiveness is boundless. And it's traditionally known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. This parable is found only in Matthew's gospel, in the entire gospel tradition. And I think we have to reckon with the fact that Matthew has likely interpreted Jesus' original parable by allegorizing it, sort of like what he did with the parable of the weeds and the wheat and the parable of the fish caught in the net in Matthew 13. Okay. Hmm. I hadn't... I didn't read it that way, so okay, let's let's go on. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll, that'll become clear as we go along. Yeah, yeah. So then the introduction to the parable is characteristic of Matthew's gospel. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves, in verse 23. Now, the slaves in this case would be something other than what we might normally think of as slaves. It is likely that the idea here is that of an official in a king's court. And, and that, that the word doulos can be used for this right. is attested by the, by the bauer arndt gingers Dunker lexicon. What, you know, Alan, when I was reading this, I was thinking of choosing a translation that used servants instead of slaves. But maybe that's still too far off. Yeah, I mean, I think minister, you know, would have been probably, if, I mean, we're dealing with a king, it's one of his ministers, Oh, Likely. yes. Does anyone translate it that way? I didn't check that. I didn't check that myself, so I don't know. <laughs> okay. So the reason why it's likely that we're dealing with a minister in the king's court or an official in the king's court is, is due to what follows. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents would brought to him, and he could, as he could not pay, the Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. That's verse 24 and 25. Okay. Now, from those of us who've, who've been in church any time, we've heard this parable so many times that 10,000 talents probably just doesn't even register for us. Right. But 10,000 talents would have been a king's fortune, or in a very wealthy kingdom, it would have been the annual income for the entire kingdom. Uh, Jerome wow. tells us that Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was one of the most prosperous of the Ptolemaic uh, rulers of Egypt, his annual income was about 15,000 talents. So we're, we're talking about a very, a very rich kingdom. Huge yeah, it's a huge amount of money. Uh, so by comparison, um, the, the income, the total income of the tetrarchies of Philip, Herod Antipas, and Archelaus were like 900 talents. Jeez. Less than 1,000 talents, right? So yeah. again, this number, 10,000 talents, is, is, is one that um, is beyond imagining. And that's yeah. the idea. The number itself, 10,000, murioi in the Greek, is the largest number imaginable. That okay. 10,000 is the largest number imaginable. And then the talent was the largest known unit of money, roughly equivalent to 6,000 drachmae, or the, which was the daily wage for a laborer. About 16 years worth of, you know, Jeez. basic pay, right? Yeah. So, wow. in other words, the amount owed was beyond imagination. That's the idea. It was right. beyond right. imagination. Beyond imagination. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now, in response, the slave begs for time. In verse 26, so the slave fell on his knees before him, and, and the word here is worshipped him, same word, proskuneo, that we found earlier in Matthew for worship. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything, in verse 26. Now, of course, the huge debt 
makes the prospect of doing that, that he would actually find a way to pay everything, hardly likely. But then what else was he supposed to say? Right? Right. I mean, at, but at this point, then the parable takes a surprising turn in verse 27. Uh, and out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. Now, um, the, the verb is splanknizthais, which is from splanknizomai, or to have compassion. And Matthew's audience would have recognized this verb because uh, Jesus had used that same word to describe the compassion he had for the crowds mm-hmm. in Ma- Matthew 9 and Matthew mm-hmm. 14 and Matthew thir- 15. So okay. they would have been familiar with this, 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 this word. But um, for theological reasons that we will discuss later, many English versions use the translation have pity on, like the NRSV does, out of a sense that the actions of this king really weren't compassionate in the sense that we think of compassion. Um, the, the Revised Standard Version, the NIV, and the New Living Translation, as well as the, ES, the English Standard Version, they all have, have pity on him. And uh, several okay. translations have felt sorry for him. So it's, it's not quite the whole having compassion like Jesus had compassion on the crowds. And it seems yeah. like for theological reasons that, that English, English translators want to distinguish between the actions of this king and the, and the actions mm-hmm. of Jesus, for example. Now, obviously, forgiving such a large debt would have been a shock to the hearers. I mean, it would just been, again, right. the, debt, the, the, the number is beyond imagining. The forgiveness right. of, of such a large debt was beyond imagining. Uh, its equivalent in today's term would have to be measured in the billions of dollars. Yeah. In the yeah. billions that, of dollars. I think that's going to be the, 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 the terminology that people are going to get, grasp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes, yes, yes. So then... The next scene, what happens? Well, it's pretty parallel to the first scene. So in the first scene, you have the king who's, who's, who's calling one of his debtors to pay what he owes. Well, in the second scene, this same slave who's just been forgiven this unimaginable debt, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe, in verse 28. So the one who had been called to settle accounts himself went out to settle his own accounts. The slave who had been forgiven a debt beyond imagining begins to choke his fellow slave. Choke his fellow slave. Yes. That's, 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 a de- that's physical. Right? Yeah, that's, that's a physical. detail that's not in the earlier scene, right? So he begins to mm-hmm. choke his fellow slave and demands repayment of what, a, what really would have been a manageable debt. A hundred denarii, about, a, right. you know, about three months worth of pay. Right. But in comparison with the debt he had been forgiven, this would have been a microscopic sum. And literally, it was one six hundred thousandth of of 10,000 talents. You know, Alan, when I read this, I just really wasn't in tune with this difference in the amounts of money. It just kind of passed over me. So now that I'm reading it with this kind of um, awareness, this is this brings us much richer. You're talking 16 years worth of mm-hmm. um, basic pay for, like, say, at, at minimum wage versus um, three months. Right. Right? <laughs> so the other, the other thing that I've been thinking about and maybe is that just how this would be such an interesting parable to play out. Because with the physical choking mm-hmm. and the yep. vision of, right. of what that looks like. Well, and like. here's this guy who's just been who's just received this really amazing gift of having been forgiven this unimaginable debt. 
and he goes and he chokes his slave for mm -hmm. what was really a, uh, a microscopic yeah. sum. Wow. So in so response... You know, the second slave mirrors the behavior and even the very words of the first slave, the, the one who owed 100 denarii. He, he, I mean, it's almost like a mirror image of the very same thing that the first slave had done with the king. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. I mean, it's almost word for word the same thing. Mm -hmm. He fell down, he pleaded with him, same words. And I think that's intentional. We're, we're meant to see the parallel in verse 29 between between that and and what the the the, the first slave uh, did in verse 26 the expectation is that this slave will extend the generosity from which he had so richly benefited to his fellow slave but that's not right. what happened that's um, what you expect to happen when you listen to yeah when, when you think about it you're like oh and so he's going to go pay it forward if you will yeah in, in modern yeah terms, right? right yeah but that's not what happened verse in verse 30 matthew says but he refused then he went and threw him out threw him into prison until he would pay the debt and matthew highlights this action and this turn in the parable by the very composition of the parable most of the sentences in this story begin with participles which is good koine greek form mm -hmm. Here, the statement is blunt, but he refused. And it's just a regular wow. verb, thelo, ude uk ethelen. And, and, and in the flow of the parable, again, I think Matthew's audience would not have missed just the sort of blunt transition. Oh, but he refused. Wow. I, I, wish, I wish that came through as much in the English because mm -hmm. that's a really cool feature. Yeah, it is. So the very wording recognizes that this is a significant turning point in the story. The fact that, that the, the slave who owed 10,000 talents refuses to give, even give, even give the slave who owed him 100 denarii more time to pay. Not, not to mention, you know, extending the generosity of forgiving the debt, right? He just, he didn't even give him more time to pay. So, well, despite the fact that this kind of scenario would have been normal, where, you know, someone who was owed a debt would have threatened imprisonment, in comparison with the forgiveness of his own unimaginable debt, his actions are clearly portrayed as scandalous. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, they're offensive to anyone who listens to it. Really. Oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. And Anybody who listens to this can, can see all of, uh, very clearly, oh, this is, this, is, this is scandalous. This is just wrong. Yeah. It's outrageous. Yeah. yeah. It is. And awesome. so as a result, the parables tell, parable tells us that when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. That's Matthew 18, 31 mm -hmm. through 34. And so at this point, we might do well to address the logic of imprisoning a debtor until the debt re is repaid. We might think, well, if you're in prison, how can you repay a debt? Mm -hmm. Well, the idea was that the action was intended to compel a person's relatives to do everything in their power to come up with the funds to, to pay the debt. And the torture would have made the case all the more compelling and urgent, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think modern listeners are going to um, turn from that word torture. I think that's going to cause a, almost... Like it's going to erase almost everything else that they hear because mm -hmm. you're going to hear that word. Is that yep. is there another translation for that? No, I don't think so. I don't think okay. so. I think that's and 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 I mean that 
So again, that, that brings up the whole question of, of, of using this parable as, a, as an analogy for God, which Matthew does. Right. And, and, so, right. and, and that's what Matthew does when he draws his conclusion in verse 35. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now we should notice the shift from the second to the second person in, in direct address. And, and, you know, previously this parable has been about describing what someone else did in the third person, right? But now it shifts to the second person. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe suggest that this is Matthew's addition. Matthew is, is, is editorializing here. Um, now, and while this statement, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother or sister from the heart, does echo the sentiment that follows the Lord's prayer in Matthew six fourteen through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Mm-hmm. Only... In Matthew's gospel, does the prospect of withholding forgiveness occur at all? Yeah. Only in Matthew's gospel. Right. It's not found in the other gospels. And Which? although although the majority of manuscripts do, if you're if you're using like the King James version, you're going to find a Mark eleven twenty six that is parallel to Matthew six fifteen. If you do not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Right. Um, but. But it, it's clearly an addition to make Mark conform to Matthew, and it's not original. Oh. So yeah. only in Matthew's gospel, I think this is a significant thing to recognize. Only in Matthew's gospel does this prospect of withholding forgiveness occur at all. And I, right. I think that's a clue to Matthew's mindset about what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's it's troubling though. You know, I'm it is about preaching this. It is and trying to make sense of that. Well, I mean, if if the whole thing is is an allegory about God, I mean, how can you see God as withhold withdrawing the forgiveness that was given, and not only that, but piling on torture? Right? <laughs> that yes, doesn't work. Exactly. Right. It doesn't. It it doesn't. It doesn't work. Right. But it, it, I guess it goes back to some of the stuff he's dealing with in his. I would say this this goes back to Matthew's image of the kingdom, which we've already talked about before. I don't really agree with Matthew's image of the kingdom. So let's talk about that. Now, it is true that the image of a king and servants, right, would have called to mind biblical energy regarding God and God's people. And it's true that the idea of settling accounts in a biblical mindset would have been associated with judgment. But what happens in this story makes that association that the king is God and the settling accounts is God's judgment problematic at least and in my mind theologically disastrous at worst. And in fact, the reason why I say that is because of the way this passage has been interpreted in the history of the church to imply that God may retract grace based either on mortal sin or on one's forfeiture of mercy through actions that are unworthy of forgiveness. Lutz goes, Lutz goes into great detail in, in outlining this. And, and you know, it, it's clear that, that, the, that the church has, has, has made that association, and I think it has, it has led them into, into really precarious territory theologically. I mean, is this really who God yeah. is? Right, yeah. right. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a, that's, a big pro- that's a big problem for us, it is. too, right? 
And so one of the things I would say that is in the first place, while selling debtors into slavery was permitted in Greek and Roman law, it was not permitted in Jewish law. Now, of course, that doesn't mean it wasn't practiced in Jewish territory, because Mm -hmm. by the time of Jesus, right, the kings were were only nominally Jewish. Furthermore, the actions of the king at the end of the parable are, you know, withdrawing the forgiveness, throwing the slave into prison, torturing him. They're much more suited to a Gentile tyrant than the gracious Mm -hmm. and merciful God who reigns over all creation. You know, they're much more serve. They're much more suited to to a pagan godless tyrant than and the gracious and merciful god of the bible so so, so it, it it doesn't work it doesn't fit it doesn't fit so we're, we're basically criticizing matthew's interpretation yes and that's why i say matthew draws the conclusion in verse 35 so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from the heart matthew is the one who takes jesus parables of the kingdom and turns them into parables about judgment. He did that with the parable of the two builders at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He did that with the parable of the weeds and the wheat in Matthew 13. He did that with the parable of the fish in the net in Matthew 13. He did that with the parable of the wicked servant in Matthew 24, the parable of the bridesmaids in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. So I think we see a pattern where Matthew takes Jesus' parables of the kingdom and turns them into parables about judgment. And again, as as I as we've discussed previously in the podcast, from my personal point of view, it makes no sense, based on what we know of Jesus from the gospel tradition as a whole, to say that the kingdom of God is primarily about judgment. And as I mentioned earlier also in, in our podcast, it seems to me that Matthew's understanding of the kingdom of God lines up with more, more with what we know about John the Baptist than what we know about Jesus from yes. the gospel tradition. And so it seems that oh. Matthew is, is framing the kingdom of God for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, Matthew is framing the kingdom of God in terms of judgment, just like John the Baptist did. Well, and think, I'm thinking about this because in a medieval period, when we have that image of judgment, that's how things are understood. Mm-hmm. And of course, you've always been talking about how Matthew is kind of the predominant gospel. It was. In people's minds. It was. And so, of course, what comes down to us historically right. is that this voice is louder yes, than it the was. other gospel Yes, voices. it was. And so Mark and Luke were seen to have been derivative from Matthew. And Matthew yeah. was the primary gospel. Yep. And so you could see how this then becomes absolutely also serves as a means of control for the church. Yep. Yep. And I wonder if Matthew is also seeing that within his, I, I don't know. I think in Matthew, I think it's more of, I would probably be a little bit more charitable to Matthew in saying that for Matthew, it's, it's more of the demand of discipleship. You know, Matthew has a very okay. high yes. notion of the demand of discipleship. Yes, and and right. I'll give okay. him credit for that, but I I cannot go with Matthew's interpretation of the kingdom here as judgment. It just makes no sense whatsoever with everything else no. I know about Jesus, even from within Matthew's gospel, even the sayings of Jesus that Matthew quotes. It just does not make sense. I I'm already thinking about. I mean, obviously, we're going to not. I'm not going to preach it as judgment, but I think explaining to the congregation, this uh, situation with Matthew. That's a tough, tough one. That's a tough one. Because right. they, they're they like, but Jesus said this, but right. this is this is an allegory. But 
Uh, and, and most Matthew, people, they, most people are not in a space where they can distinguish between what Jesus said and what Matthew said. Yeah, because yeah. it's all in the Bible, and so it all must be it's from Jesus. Yeah, and yeah. it's got red letters. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, even my NRSV, even in my NRSV, it's in red letters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so that's a real that's a, this is a real challenge for us. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. It is, and and that's something we should probably talk about further. Yeah, I think we should later. My own approach to this parable is that this is a parable about a cruel tyrant who shows shocking mercy to a debtor with an unimaginable debt. And his cruelty, I think, is demonstrated by his actions in treating the debtor, debtor precisely as he treated the second slave, right? There's, again, right. there's a parallelism between, between um, um, Matthew 18.30 and Matthew 18.34. And, and actually, we're going to see this again in Matthew's version of the parable, the talents, we're going to see that that the mm-hmm. that the that the king in the parable of the talents, you know, punishes the the slave who didn't do anything with his talent in accordance with his description of the king as being a harsh person who who reaps what he does not sow and things like this, which to me doesn't make any sense as a description of God. So so again, the cruelty of this tyrant is is demonstrated by the fact that he withdraws his forgiveness, he throws him in prison, and he. He adds torture to that as well. Mm-hmm. So in my opinion, the original parable is not an allegory about God at all. And some people even raise the question, was this even a parable of the kingdom? Or did Matthew turn oh. it into a parable of the kingdom? Oh. That's, which is also another question that yeah, is important. I, I wondered, I actually asked that of myself when you started yep. off. Yep. Because it started off with... The kingdom of God is like, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think think the original parable does, however, dramatically illustrate how outrageous it is to accept God's gracious mercy without extending it to others. And I think the the crux of it is is in verse 33. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's the I think that's the key statement in the original parable, and 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 I can see Jesus telling a parable, a story about a ty- a Gentile tyrant. I mean, the folks in 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 uh, you know Judea would have been very familiar with Gentile tyrants. <laughs> uh, yes. Right. Yes. Their Absolutely. their recent history Absolutely. was was full of them, and and so I, you know um, I can see Jesus telling a story about a, a a cruel tyrant who shows shocking mercy to a debtor, you know, but but in order, you know, to set up set up this whole the outrageous situation where the one forgiven so much won't even forgive a microscopic some by comparison and and so again this i think it's a story to illustrate how outrageous it is to accept god's mercy right. without extending it to right. others and i i agree that's at least how i understood it but yep. i thank you because we've got some problems here yep. that um, i don't think jesus out. original parable made the made drew the analogy of the king is god right. i don't th- and and the and the settling accounts is judgment i don't think jesus right told the parable with that intention at all. That was Matthew's reading of it. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, we'll take a look and see um, what Calvin says, a little bit about Luther's response, and uh, then some modern-day uh, or some contemporary things that this impacted. So we have some 
coming up. All right. Thanks, Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at what the Reformers had to say about it. And we may be surprised at what we hear, or maybe not surprised. I don't know. Uh, Tell us what you found, Christy. Sure. So, uh, some of both, right? So, in the first part of of his analysis, Calvin addresses one of the assumptions about humanity. And it's it's really, you know, if if we don't come down hard on someone, then will it not continue... I'm saying this in the negative. We, if we need to come down hard on someone, or they'll continue to misbehave. Mm-hmm. So it's <laughs> um, so. And Peter, in asking the question, "How many times should I forgive?" Um, is assuming that is seven itself is a lot. Yeah, according to Calvin, Def- I would but agree. Jesus, but Jesus then is like, no, no, seven times seventy, and has the same um, opinion that Alan does that this is just there should be no limit to mm-hmm. forgiveness. Mm-hmm. We should never give up. So, so interesting that we start our hard parable, if you will, with that yeah. forgiveness. That well, and, and the interesting thing I find is that also in the history of, of the interpretation of this passage, people, you know, have even up to today, even modern commentators talk about this question. If you don't expect anything of anybody, if you just give unlimited forgiveness like this, are you encouraging people to misbehave and or to or to sin and and um it's like the church has never been able to handle the fact that jesus simply says forgive yeah. right without limits yeah yeah right <laughs> so so then calvin begins to ask these questions are we to forgive just anyone or someone who is actually repentant. So Calvin kind of goes on this explanation of forgiveness. And in Calvin's understanding, Christ forgives only those who are repentant. Calvin identifies that sins are forgiven in two ways. First, if someone does a wrong against me and I do not stop loving them and give to them, even if I still feel wronged, I am said to forgive him. So this is where we are not excusing the behavior, but that we are not harboring hard fields towards an individual. Mm-hmm. The second is when a person comes to us wanting to think well of them and convinced that the, quote, memory of their faults is wiped out before God. The difference in the first and the second is that there's a direct sin against someone, and in the second, a general sin that has labeled a person. So in my own understanding of Calvin, I am thinking that in the first case, Calvin is talking about someone who has directly sinned against you, maybe someone who has stolen money from you. And in the second, it is someone who goes around saying harsh things about others, maybe never directly to me, but is known for this kind of discrediting Mm. of others. So Mm -hmm. as someone who has this, if you will, kind of of cloud of sin that covers around their identity. Sure, sure. And in that case, those folks are looking for our forgiveness as a way to be assured of God's love and forgiveness. And Calvin, this is so interesting, says that this is necessary because as human beings, we are too critical. (laughs) And because we are reluctant to forgive, quote, sadness and desperation swallow up unhappy men who are denied forgiveness. Yeah. So I actually thought that was kind of modern psychological thinking on Calvin's part, right? Yeah. So... Um, 
Now, I know what you're thinking. What if this is not sincere? And Calvin actually addresses this too, saying to err on the side of forgiveness always. Christ wants us to be fair and humane, to reach out a hand to those who are penitent when they are clearly, quote, displeased with themselves. As Calvin reminds us, penitence is a holy thing, so should, we should not hinder true repentance, but be encouraging. Yeah, I like that. I like what Calvin is doing here. I, 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 what I found was that it seems like everybody thinks they have to connect repentance with forgiveness in some way. In, you know, even though, even though Calvin doesn't say that it's necessary, he does connect repentance with the forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And Jesus doesn't. And that's something I think that, is, that, has, that has offended the church for centuries. You know, how can you forgive somebody when they're not repentant? Right, right. And that is definitely part of that, our Reformed tradition, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, is that mm -hmm. this, I know. You, you can't get forgiveness if you don't actually feel this. But that's not what Jesus says. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it is interesting how I think we jump in and assume yep. that's part of the deal. Yep, and that's been and the true. I think that's been true for most of the history of the church. I think so too. Yeah, and and but and it's hard to think about. You know, I mean, I keep thinking of somebody that is being accused of something in a court and a judge passing down judgment on them and. You know, do they feel sorry for what they did mm -hmm. or, you know, and if they feel sorry and you can tell they have remorse, they tend to get a lighter sentence. Right. 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 Um, so it's very interesting. Our human nature, so, I think, has has problems with, with with Jesus principle of unlimited forgiveness. I think. So. Oh, I, definitely. Well, and I think actually Calvin admits that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And I love I do love in here the sense of. Um, the sense of error on the side of forgiveness. Yes, I like that. and humane to people. I yep. think people visualize Calvinism being so strict and mm -hmm. unforgiving and harsh. That's not what Calvin says. Yep, I like you know, that. Calvin, yeah, Calvin's heart is, is bigger than that. Um, so then the parable. And I think Calvin is perceptive in noting that our tendency to see faults in others and not be merciful was observed by Jesus. And therefore, he has this parable to help us see our mm. own weaknesses. Interesting. He's, he says, Calvin does, the point of this parable is to show that people are not willing to forgive others, cannot expect God to forgive them. Interesting. Because we just talked about. Right. I think he's taken, I think he's taken the whole thing more seriously. You know, I, I think he, he's not making the distinction between Matthew's voice and Luke's, Jesus' voice here, obviously. No. No. But interesting because this is only in Matthew, right? Right. right. Uh, he, he he is addressing it separately, so it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I agree that the the voice, the mm -hmm. broader voice, is not there. Mm -hmm. So Calvin notes that there is a juxtaposition between the extreme mercy of the master and then the servant who would not forgive. Mm -hmm. The kingdom of heaven for Calvin here means the spiritual state of the church. It is the responsibility of us who are in the kingdom of heaven to show the same mercy that God has for us to others. I, I'm, I'm not surprised that he equates the kingdom with the church. That was, that was sort of common in that day. Yes, yes. Calvin goes on to comment on the seemingly harsh demands of the master that this is th what complete justice would look like toward the unforgiving servant. Mm, wow. If you will. 
But Calvin said that God is always merciful first. So it was like it But there first. is this there is this possibility of quote unquote justice in 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 yes. in condemning the unforgiving servant. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which yes. I, I would I would say fundamentally misunderstands God's justice in the Bible. I think that's fair, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's fair. And I I think that's fair of the time period. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I agree. I yeah. agree. Yeah. So finally, in the last part of this commentary, Calvin Calvin, of course, attacks Roman Catholic practice. And that tradition in, from in Matthew 18, 34, um, and, and, and in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until mm. he should pay this entire debt. The word until here mm. was used to justify purgatory. Wow. In other words, they used the scripture for to support that doctrine. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. I wanted just to remind us about purgatory again, uh, but a practice of the Roman Catholic Church that is temporary punishment until all sins can be absolved. And this is why confession and mass is so important at the end of life in the Roman Catholic Church. And I know when I served as a chaplain that there was always a priest available who really did nothing more than to dip, than, than come into the room and have someone give confession and give mass. Mm -hmm. uh, probably had some penitence So there, that they die in as, as much of a state of grace as possible. Exactly. Yeah. So there was actually very little pastoral care mm -hmm. from these guys, mm -hmm. um, other than this priestly role. I do want to not be too critical, is that his presence actually brought great comfort sure. to the Roman Catholics in the hospital. But in that theology, we as human beings are always in a state of, of sin unless we have confessed done penance and take a yep, mass. Yep. Mass renews us in Christ's purity. But of course, we start to sin again as soon as mass is complete, <laughs> right? And so that was that was Martin Luther's obsession, right? He could never be truly in a state of grace because he was starting to sin immediately. right? And so in the Reformation, we acknowledge that we confess to God alone, not to a priest, and that we do not earn our way to salvation by doing acts of penance, but rather are forgiven merely out of God's grace. Mm -hmm. So that forgiveness, that full forgiveness is clear to me in this passage, but you can see how this has been manipulated. Well, it's interesting because we can, when it comes to God forgiving us, we want it to be unlimited and without restrictions. But when it comes to us forgiving others, it seems like our human nature always turns to, well, there has to be some kind of repentance. There has to be some kind of change. There has to be something there for us to be able to forgive. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's almost like, it's almost like we, we have failed to catch the point of the parable through, through our, the way we've interpreted this parable for centuries. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. So I want to turn to Martin Luther who provides us a theological lens uh, regarding this passage. And we've talked about how Luther believes in two kingdoms mm -hmm. concept, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of humans. So in, in this kingdom, this is where God, in, in God's kingdom, God reigns by the gospel and that alone. And in the kingdom, there is no punishment, but rather, quote, brotherly service and well-doing to one another. To Luther, this parable is not about the human world, mm. But about God's realm, our human government pertains to inferior things. So he's really drawing this as this is what God's perfect kingdom looks like. 
but our human one doesn't can't it doesn't operate this. so since we're not in god's perfect kingdom we do things according to the kingdom of humans which means we expect we expect penance penance before we forgive mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> then i finally did a last thing and kind of looked at um, some of the other ways that this has been used and um this there's, this parable actually um impacted how early modern people reacted to the poor hmm. which seems out of context but they're looking at they're looking at this in the context of the uh, the, the second servant yeah right who who couldn't as, as someone who was poor they couldn't pay back right. the small amount of right. money so they right. recognize the amount and one of the shifts is into this concern of the poor is the emphasis on the priesthood of all believers and this means that all believers were called into service to act in response to Christ. Charity was not merely a response of clergy, but of all Christians. Mm. And we see an increase in charitable acts as the church is now calling on people to respond in charity. Of course, Calvin's Geneva is known as being a center of charity. But all cities, all these Reformation cities become imbu- that, that become imbued with these Reformation ideas have charity as one of the acts of the city mm. particularly in the free cities that were governed by a group of, of people mm-hmm. so here's an example says luther of forgiveness that we are called to emulate mm. interesting yeah. yeah isn't that interesting yeah so yeah i mean i can see uh, that you know with the with the ten thousand talents being an incredible fortune and a hundred denarii being basically a a, a, a normal amount of money mm-hmm. well, and part of why this is used that way is you know i talked about it's something we can act out it's also something we can illustrate so mm-hmm. they can use this as an illustration in the bible this poor servant that's not forgiven right you know that right. should have been forgiven that's we can see that as someone who's poor yeah. so that's partly i think why it becomes in that space yeah, yeah. Interesting. interesting yeah thanks christy thank you everybody we are back and during our break we we talked about the challenge of preaching this passage because do you recognize it as being unique to matthew and kind of throw matthew under the bus if you will um suggesting that here's gospel and he's just playing wrong do you just kind of leave it out um and so i thought i'd ask alan how he intends to approach it yeah that i mean it is a tough question um and as i said earlier in my experience, most people in most churches aren't at the place where they can take what's in the Bible and distinguish Matthew's voice from Jesus' voice. And mm-hmm. so I don't know that it is productive at all to say, well, Matthew is the one who took this original parable of Jesus and turned it into judgment. Um, and, and, and that is a problem because most people have read this parable as an allegory for God. And so they think of God in terms of this king. And, right. they, and they, I hear people all the time, you know, t- speaking about God in the Presbyterian church, speaking about God as if God would somehow withdraw his saving grace from them right. for something for, because they stepped over some line somewhere. 
that is not my understanding of God. And so it would be, I think it would be really helpful to be able to discuss what's going on here fully. But I just don't think most people are in a place where they can hear it. And so for me, I think the point, as I said, I think the crux of the parable is um, in verse 32 and verse 33. Um, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And, and you know, it, I think it is clear uh, in throughout the Bible, not just in the New Testament, not just in Jesus' teaching, but throughout the Bible, it is clear that in, in biblical terms, those who experience God's mercy are expected to extend that mercy to those around them in like manner. Now, our mercy is not going to be as perfect as God's, but you know, I think that's exactly what Jesus was trying to get out here with, with the whole idea of unlimited right. forgiveness. We are not to put right. limits on mercy. We are not to be calculating, well, this is the fifth time you've done this or whatever. We're, we're, right. we're, you know, that is not the way God operates with his mercy. And right. so we are to be like God in, in the way we extend forgiveness and mercy to others. Mm -hmm. we, we are to be just as forgiving and merciful to others as God has been to us. Mm -hmm. I don't like the step that Matthew takes in, in saying, if you don't do that, then God's not going to forgive you. Because that makes, that makes our experience of God's grace based on something we do. Right, right. And, and I, don't, I don't like that step. And again, right. I think, in my opinion, Matthew's the only one who takes that step. It's not well, found elsewhere me, in the Gospels. To me, yeah, it becomes, it, it, it loses the emphasis on that, that joy mm -hmm. that you have when, when you do forgive someone it, 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 and, and that they receive that joy. It, it becomes this, this, I don't know, this, this, this thing about works and it becomes this thing about mm -hmm. I have to do it. And right, obligation. It heavy. It's an obligation. Yes, it's a duty. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, I, I like the fact that you use the word joy, because to me, I think my reading of, of the Bible on this and my reading of Jesus on this is, you know, by encountering God's mercy in Jesus, we have encountered something so transformative. We've encountered a generosity that is so beyond imagining that we can't help but extend that same generosity and that same mercy to others because it's transformed us from the inside. Now, none of us does it perfectly, right? But, but I, to me, that's my reading of it is, you know, those of us who've experienced God's mercy in this way can't help but extend it. We want to extend it. We're glad to be generous with others and to be merciful mm -hmm. to others and to be forgiving with others because we know just the amazing gift of mercy and grace and forgiveness we've received. That's my reading of it as well. And I, I don't like the fact that, you know, um, you know, the way Matthew phrases it, you know, if you forgive, then your heavenly father will forgive. If you don't forgive, then your heavenly father won't forgive you. You know, it just, it turns it into an obligation. It turns it into yes. a duty. It turns it, it into does. a burden as opposed to something that's just, it comes from within. It's just intrinsic, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, I mean, that's how we treat people. I mean, that's how we relate to people. If somebody right. is, is generous with us, you know, it, it makes a difference in our lives. When, when someone comes into our lives and, and, and they, they 
we benefit from some act of generosity on their part, it, it you know, it impacts us and we remember right. that. And it's, it's right. something that, that, you know, affects the way we influence, the way we relate to other people. Right. It's like you, the idea you were talking about before paying it forward, you know, yeah. when yeah. someone does something incredibly generous to us, it makes us want to pay it forward. It makes us want to extend that mercy to others or, or that generosity to others. And I really like I really like um, how you're how you're talking. I mean, I think that's it reminds me of how we started today talking about how this is part of the community mm-hmm. um, community discourse, how we work together in community, yeah. how we how we are not designed in isolation. There's a lot of this that has a lot of individuality about it. But when we talk about how community works and growing together in community and building in community and how Jesus is like this master of how we are designed to work together. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm, I'm hearing in this. And well, I'm yeah, and this is, a prin- this, is, this is one of the key principles of how the community is to relate to one another, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is yeah. you don't put limits on forgiveness. You, you exactly. extend it just exactly. as it's been extended to you. Yeah. Well, and imagine anytime someone comes to you and they come to you in the spirit of forgiveness, that it takes all the burden off your shoulders and all of a sudden you feel love. And I think that's that love coming in. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Instead of this sense of buckling down, I'm going to fight against it. I'm not going to, you know, it, it, it changes, it changes everything. And if we, but we have to do that to others. It's not just once it, it, it's through. Yep. It's a, it's a whole attitude of your life. It's a whole attitude, basically. Yeah. yeah. You, know, I, you know, I've made it pretty clear, I think, in the podcast that, that I believe that God's purpose is to redeem all people, mm-hmm. ultimately. And, and when I've taught that, even in the Presbyterian Church, um, I've had people say, well, if God is ever eventually going to save everyone, then why do we go to church? Like, we go to church so <laughs> that we, we guarantee that God will accept us, you know, but and, that, that whole framing's wrong. That whole framing's wrong. But and the way I've answered that question is, well, we go to church because we have encountered in Jesus a love so amazing that it has transformed our hearts, and we want to try to, you know, live into that and to, and to follow him and to be like him and, and learn how to live that way. That's why we come to church. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, frankly, the, the, the looks I've, I've received from that statement have been like, Deer, deer in, a head, in the headlights, you know, it just <laughs> right. doesn't compute. Right. And, and um, I've heard, I've heard people, I've heard people say in the Presbyterian Church, "I will never forgive so and so for what they did." Oh, I've heard that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, I, you know, I, as someone who knows this passage so well, it always echoes in my mind when they say that. Yeah, and right. and. I mean, I think, but, this, I think the sermon on this passage is an opportunity to address that kind of attitude. Right. That's, that's right. Well, and think about that. When you go on, <laughs> as someone who usually sits on it longer than I should. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, when you go on with that burden on your shoulders, that, that it, it doesn't really allow you to live in love. No, that's right. Joy. It's just this burden on your life. And, yeah. Um, well, it, 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 you know, basically what happens is, is you know, it, 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 it restricts your heart 
and restricts your sense of self into these very constra- constrained and confined spaces. And, and, and people who are living from a very small sense of their self aren't generous people. They can't be generous yeah, people. They just don't right. have it in them to be generous that's people right. because they have such a very small sense of themselves. I know when I have something on my heart that uh, I keep playing it over and over. I can't move on through Mm -hmm. it. I have to keep talking about it, talking about it. I I drive myself crazy. I know what I'm doing. I can recognize it. It's not until I'm able to, and it's not necessarily head, it's heart, that I can move on and then I can be myself again. So imagine if you never forgive, then that's, that's all that plays through your mind for years yeah. and years maybe your whole life I maybe know. you you know i remember going into the chaplaincy um to the hospitals when people had not forgiven and they were here on their deathbed and what's on their mind this grudge this, this grudge yeah. yeah i think all of this you know i think the discussion all revolves around how we frame the ethic of the kingdom mm-hmm. is it based on an intrinsic motivation or is it based on an extrinsic motivation? Mm. You know, fear right. of judgment or seeking to gain forgiveness by what we do, that's an extrinsic motivation, right? Mm-hmm. Any parent knows that extrinsic motivation only goes so far. Right. If it's, if it's fear of punishment or promise of reward, that only goes so far. And it's not really going to shape a child's behavior. That's right. Only That's right. when when you can only when you can relate to your child in such a way that you you implant a principle in their hearts. Are they going to go out and live that way when you're not around to see what they're doing, right? And and I think this is I think this is the point of the text here is that you know forgiveness has to come out of an in, intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. We forgive because we have been forgiven so generously, so graciously by God. And it's not a quid pro quo. It's not a, oh, well, I have to do this. It's not an obligation or a burden or a duty like you were talking about. It's a joy, right? Because um, it's something we want to do because our experience of God's mercy has changed us so much that yes, you know we've gone yes. from being this small self in this constrained space to being a much bigger self who is able right. to to right. take on the burdens that other people may yes. inflict upon us without necessarily you know retaliating in kind that was well stated and 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 absolutely beautiful um again it, it's um it's <laughs> It's it's the call. It's the call of Christ. Absolutely, us. absolutely. And um, to be in community, it, it it takes you, it takes you out of self. If mm-hmm. you will, well, bit. and yeah. and you know this principle of unlimited forgiveness is one that we just can't really wrap our human minds around. Oh, that's right. I mean, right. you know, even within even within um, like the recovery movement, uh, you know, people talk about tough love and enabling people right. and all that. Oh, we have right. that language that has made its way mm-hmm. into our culture. You're enabling them, you know. Right. 
that's that's the, none of that none of that's involved in what Jesus right. is saying here. <laughs> what it's Jesus like, is saying exactly. here is that God's mercy is completely unlimited, unrestricted, without conditions, right. and so must ours be. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, what a what a well. I think that was a beautiful conclusion to a really hard passage. Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.